from his earliest days on the 2016 campaign trail, President Trump has taken a combative stance toward China. China is upset with the fact that I'm talking about them negatively from a financial standpoint, that I've mentioned the fact that they're ripping us off. And so I responded, I think you'll like actually the response. The response was the kind of response we should have been giving them for many, many years. For years now, he's used inflammatory rhetoric to simplify our very complex relationship with the Asian country. He publicly accuses China of ripping off the United States, stealing jobs from Americans, and taking advantage of our trade agreements. Since Trump's been in office, those heated statements have translated into actions, largely in the form of tariffs. Over the past two years, the U.S. has imposed tariffs on billions of dollars worth of Chinese goods. China has responded by, well, imposing tariffs on billions of dollars worth of U.S. goods. These tariffs are exchanges of blows in what is now an escalating trade war, a war in which Trump has literally declared himself a tariff man. So who serves to benefit in this U.S.-China trade war? What are the consequences for the global economy? And can Trump win? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Now, these tariff battles are between the world's two largest economies, so the implications are pretty huge. The stock market rises and falls on the tensions between these two countries. Given this, confusion about where the U.S. and China stand on reaching a trade deal is not a good thing. But confusion is largely what we've seen this week. Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping engaged in trade talks over dinner in Argentina last weekend. Yet each leader seemed to emerge with different ideas of what exactly was agreed upon. Those discrepancies have sent the Dow plummeting amid uncertainty about what may happen next. So, for now, we're still at war. I suppose that the simplest way to think of it is instead of a war using bombs and munitions, uh, you're using tariffs. So in this case, it's President Trump making it more expensive for Americans to buy Chinese products, so we'll buy fewer of them, and presumably he hopes buy more products made here in the United States. That's David J. Lynch, a financial reporter at The Post who covers international trade. To start, I wanted to know how we even define trade war. Is it formally declared at some point like a military war? David explains. It's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. You can get an argument from other people that we're not quite in a full-scale war yet. We've been trading some punches. We've maybe been skirmishing, but we haven't gone to DEFCON 1. And what would constitute DEFCON 1, as you say? Well, I suppose in the worst case, if, if President Trump were to follow through on his most extreme threats against China and put a tariff on absolutely every product that Americans buy from China, that's pretty clearly a yeah. trade war. And depending on the level of the tariff, some of the initial ones he's put on have been 10 percent, which is pretty manageable. And consumers, I don't think, have noticed too much of an impact yet. But the 25 percent level that he's put on other Chinese products and has threatened to apply to billions and billions more, that would really be a noticeable impact on the economy. So when he's doing those things, is his intention to ignite a trade war? Or is he merely – is that merely a side effect? 
Well, you know, this is one of the ambiguities of of the current case. The administration will say that their intent has been very clear, that they want to get China to stop its unfair trade practices and create a level playing field and open their market for Americans. Critics of the administration have said, well, it's really not that simple. And they point to the administration's negotiating objectives and the demands that they have put on China, which – We first got a glimpse of back in May, eight pages long, single-spaced, incredibly voluminous. Some people said basically it it amounted to asking China to become the United States. The Chinese have taken that list and broken it down into 142 separate asks. That's an awful lot. And it's left the Chinese and many outside observers wondering what is it exactly that the administration wants. And so that's one thing that the administration can do. In terms of the administration's unilateral power or Trump's unilateral power, can he impose tariffs as often as he wishes and without Congress? Not really. There are – because of the World Trade Organization and our membership in that uh, body, which is supposed to set global trading rules, a country is limited – to a couple of narrow exemptions. This gets a little wonky, but there are two sections of U.S. trade law, Section 232 and Section 301. 232 is the national security exemption, which basically says, okay, if it's a if it's a real issue in national security, you can ignore all those fancy trade rules and kind of do whatever you want. And the administration has taken that loophole and really driven a Mack truck through it. Who gets to determine if it rises to the level of a national security threat? The president. Okay, so he's sort of setting his own bar. In that sense, sure. I mean, other people can can argue, but it's it tends not to be, you know, there have been complaints now, the European Union and others have taken this issue to the World Trade Organization and said, hey, hang on, that's really not a genuine national security issue. The problem with the WTO is, you know, it takes, it's like, any legal or institutional process is going to take a while to get an answer. How common is it for a president to do this, to impose tariffs on a foreign country repeatedly, aggressively? Have we seen that before? We've seen sort of isolated instances of it. Uh, President Bush back in uh, 2001 or 2002 imposed tariffs on steel. Uh, They only lasted for a while and that was under a a different provision, the so-called safeguard provision uh, of U.S. trade law. But we haven't seen anything like what we're going through now probably since the 1930s. President Trump, as he said, he's a tariff man (laughs) and uh, and he's been – you know, he's been consistent in his views on trade since the 1980s when he was a businessman in New York and in those days he was preoccupied by – as many Americans were – by the – the economic threat from Japan. Fast forward to today, the only thing that's changed for the president is that the bad actor is China rather than Japan. Why China? China is the big actor on the global stage. And certainly since they joined the WTO in 2001, the economic relationship between the U.S. and China has exploded. And I think the president looks at what's happened with the movement of a lot of factories and low or lesser skilled labor to China, which has been a devastating blow for a lot of Midwestern factory towns. For the overall economy, economists will tell you it's been a net positive because it's you know kept inflation down for 20 years. It's allowed us to buy products of greater variety and less expensively and it's sort of made the our economy and their economy work better and more efficiently. 
And that's great if you're looking at the economy from the aggregate. The president tends to have a more binary view of winners and losers and he looks at the, the bilateral trade deficit that we have with China and he regards that as a, as a transfer of wealth, that the Chinese are effectively taking money from the United States and it's making us poorer. Most mainstream economists, matter of fact, all mainstream economists would say a bilateral trade deficit doesn't really reflect that. It's, it reflects broader forces within the economy, national levels of savings and productivity and the like, and that you know we're, we're giving the Chinese money and we're getting things back for it, which is the way things should work. But that's not the way the president sees it and it's not the way some of his key advisors see it. So then at this point, have we seen the escalating trade war with China affect domestic U.S. industries? Yes, in, in specific cases. If you're a company that uses steel, we've made steel more expensive. That's good news for folks who produce steel. That's bad news for folks who use steel. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, if you're working in a steel mill, good news for you. Your job's probably safer. But if you're working in a car plant or if you're building refrigerators or even in construction, now your costs have gone up. That's bad for your business. Now maybe you've had to lay off some people. And you can't just buy steel from an American manufacturer of steel? Well, you can, but their prices have gone I up. See. see, that's one of the one of the when you make the foreign steel more expensive, you've now given a license for domestic guys to raise raise their prices to the higher level. So, all prices go up. How has China retaliated at this point? Well, they've given us a little bit of the same medicine. When when the president uh, applied tariffs on fifty billion worth of Chinese products this summer, the Chinese responded with an equivalent amount of American or, or retaliated against an equivalent value of American imports. problem for the Chinese has been we buy so much more stuff from them. We buy mm -hmm. just in goods $505 billion worth a year of Chinese products. They only buy about $130 billion from the U.S. So they got very close to running out of things to put tariffs on by the second round. And that had led other, some people to worry about other ways in which the Chinese could retaliate. Uh, and we've seen some signs of that. Have there been attempts leading up to the G20 meeting to de-escalate the tension between the two countries? Yeah, there had been a, a series of negotiation efforts that were stillborn. Last year, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross had led an effort to get limits on Chinese steel production going back to where this whole thing started. And he thought he had a deal, took it to the president, and the president said thumbs down on that. A few months later, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin led a different delegation to Beijing came up with a plan where the Chinese were going to agree to buy more stuff from us to narrow the trade deficit that the president is so worried about. Thought we had a deal. president didn't like that one either. And so the result has been the Chinese are, have been until recently, I think, a little bit puzzled as, in terms of what will it take for the president you know, to say yes. Uh, and that's what's brought us to the G20. At the G20 in Argentina last Saturday, Trump and Xi talked tariffs over dinner that lasted more than two hours. Soon after that meeting, a U.S. statement indicated meaningful progress and that China had made certain promises. But Trump aides quickly backtracked on those claims, and China failed to confirm the details of the deal. The one thing that both sides could publicly agree on was that the talks went well and that the two countries will use the next 90 days to negotiate their trading relationship. But the roadmap for that time frame and what exactly happens at the end of 90 days remains vague. 
In the absence of a clear joint statement, the tumult and ambiguity had a big impact on the global economy. Well, Wall Street didn't like it. <laughs> uh, you know, on Monday, in response to some some of the positive assessments, the markets did okay, a little bit of a bump up, but nothing dramatic. But Tuesday, as, as some of these contradictions became more apparent, contradictions between the, the U.S. claims of great success and sort of Chinese silence or lack of detail, uh, the markets turned around and lost 3 to 4 percent, a pretty sizable move across the board. And this comes after a few weeks of, of some fairly uh, unsettled financial markets. So it hasn't been good news in the short term there. Uh, and it's left a lot of people wondering what the next 90 days are going to look like. Besides the economic impacts here, what long-term consequences might this trade war have on U.S.-China relations? Yeah, well, uh, it's a good question because apart from the tariffs, there's there's a broader sort of disentanglement going on between the Chinese and American economies. For 40 years now, the U.S. and China have been getting more and more intertwined, not just economic relationships, but Chinese students coming over in droves to study in American universities, which is great news for cash-strapped you know, state universities in the United States who can charge top dollar for Chinese students who can afford to pay it. That's, that's a big deal for American universities. Scientific collaboration, medical collaboration, all of that is at risk, frankly, because the administration is, is leading this effort to, to rethink the, the broader relationship and to look at China. And uh, the viewpoint is sort of, you know, we assumed that as you guys developed economically, you'd become uh, a more open society, a more small d democratic society. And not only has that not happened, but in fact, under President Xi Jinping, things seem to be going in reverse a little bit in terms of the centralization of authority and, and a, a tighter dictatorship and, and social control. And so the administration and, and others are looking at China now and saying, this isn't just a commercial competitor that we otherwise cooperate with. This is a potential enemy. This is an adversary that has ambitions to perhaps push us out of Asia and perhaps one day supplant us as the dominant global power. And that's uh, led to a sort of across-the-board rethinking of how much we want to deal with China. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Trump and his administration may be rethinking our entire broader relationship with China beyond our economic one. But what's China's impression of the Trump administration's approach? I mean, the very widespread interpretation here is that Trump is trying to keep China down. Anna Fifield is the Washington Post's bureau chief in Beijing, China. She spoke to us over Skype to explain how the details and perceptions of this trade war are playing out inside China. All of this, the trade war, uh, all of the rhetoric against China is all designed to stop China's rise and, uh, you know, keep the U.S. in pole position. 
So this latest arrest of uh, of the Huawei executive is also being seen in that light. People are saying that, you know, it's because Huawei has become too popular and too competitive that now the U.S. is doing everything that it can to try to stop it from competing with American technology companies. This week, the arrest of a prominent executive at a Chinese tech company, Huawei, put pressure on the ongoing negotiations between Trump and Xi. Huawei's chief financial officer was arrested in Canada. The U.S. is trying to extradite her on allegations of breaching American sanctions against Iran. It's being seen as politically motivated. The timing of it is seen as political rather than purely legal or economic. President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping were having dinner together in Buenos Aires on the very same day that uh, Ms. Meng was arrested in Vancouver. We don't know whether uh, President Trump informed his Chinese counterpart that this arrest was underway or was going to happen or that this action was underway. But some American executives that I've spoken to here today said that they would be shocked if uh, if President Trump had not given his Chinese counterpart a heads up on this. But at this stage, we simply don't know what kind of warning they may have been given. Okay, so let's pivot a little bit more to talk about how Trump makes his position on China very clear publicly. He issues critical tweets, condemning statements. What kind of messages are communicated in China about the the trade war between the United States and their country? The trade war, you know, China has been very um, standing its ground in terms of its public pronouncements. And after President Xi and President Trump reached this you know, vague agreement at the weekend in Buenos Aires, China was really portraying this as a win for China, that China had now agreed to go back to talks, uh, having extracted some promises from President Trump. There was no mention in the state press here of any 90-day deadline. There was no mention of any uh, agreements that China had made in terms of reviewing this Qualcomm deal that President Trump had apparently asked for, of reviewing autos tariffs. So all of the things that President Trump was trumpeting after the meeting were nowhere to be heard or seen uh, in Beijing or China. And what are the most important things to China in this trade war? Right. So China, you know, basically wants the the tariffs to be gone. Uh, They have said that they are willing to buy more American products, which is a key thing that, uh, that the U.S. has been asking for. But the big question is kind of what products. And China made a big kind of song and dance about kind of blaming it on the U.S. in a way and saying, well, the U.S. has got to produce things that we actually want, uh, putting the ball back in their court. But the thing is that if the China just goes out and suddenly buys a whole lot more soybeans and LNG and all these things that have been stopped in this trade war, that's not going to address any of the structural issues that the U.S. wants. All of these practices that the U.S. sees, and not just the U.S., I should say, that the European countries and companies and Japanese and, you know, a lot of countries around the world uh, take issue with Chinese corporate or economic practices. Um, but it's the U.S. that's really been driving this and kind of being bad cop while everybody else sits back and hopes that, you know, in many ways, even though they don't agree with his tactics, many 
countries around the world agree with President Trump on this and hope that he's successful in forcing uh, China to change. So then do you foresee a truce in the coming months? I think yes. Uh, Even though the language that we are hearing from China is, you know, they're kind of digging in their heels in a kind of conciliatory way at the same time. You know, China's economy is slowing quite a lot, and that is a cause for concern uh, amongst the leadership. You know, ordinary people are complaining about the economic slowdown. I mean, that was happening anyway before this trade war happened, but that's really going to, uh, you know, that could put some heat on the leadership here. I think that they are willing to, um, yeah, to bargain and to give up more to the U.S., but, yeah, the big question is how much of it is just window dressing. Is, is it genuine or is this just, you know, striking a deal and moving on? I think the Chinese really miscalculated. They thought that when President Trump started this trade war that it was just about, you know, the president being able to secure a victory that he could tweet about. Uh, they thought that this was going to be short-lived, and they realized that they really miscalculated there, and that this is something that President Trump has been in for the long haul, and that he, you know, that it's not going to go away quickly. So I think that they will look for a face-saving way out of this. So then if the likelihood and timing of reconciliation is unknown at this point, what would success look like for President Trump? Can he essentially win this trade war? I propose that question back to David, our financial reporter. Yeah, that's in, that's in the eye of the beholder, I suppose. Uh, and it's one of the ambiguities. It's not quite clear what the goal is. Um, There are people around the president who want to bring all the supply chains home, all those factories we talked about that went, that left the U.S. and went to China. There are some around him that sort of want to run that movie in reverse and bring it all home. Others say that's not really uh, realistic, but that we can't have the sort of full-scale cooperation we've had, so we need to have them a little bit more at arm's length. Um, The president's view seems to be that we have the leverage, that the United States has the leverage. Our economy at the moment is going gangbusters. Theirs is starting to slow. Uh, they need us more than we need them, I think, is the president's view. That's going to be put to the test. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? If you liked this week's episode or enjoyed a previous week's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friends. And next week, you'll hear something a little bit different on the show because I will be on vacation, but you guys are going to love it. So tune in. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the impressive Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 